Welcome to Lessons from History. In our last episode, we talked about the school certificate. This time we want to discuss what replaced it, the A-level. We hinted in our first episode that the school certificate had quite a brief lifespan of just over 30 years. What went wrong? Why did people want to replace it, Daisy? The school certificate and higher certificate are reviewed and replaced, I would argue, as part of the reforming zeal that exists in Britain in the Second World War and the years straight after. In 1944, there's one of the most landmark education acts in England, the Butler Act. We are going to be doing a two-part series on the Butler Act coming up quite soon, so I don't want to go into it in, in huge detail. No spoilers. But the Butler Act is a major reform of education in England, and as part of the Butler Act, there is a separate sort of commission within it called the Norwood Commission that is chaired by a former Harrow headmaster. Was he called Norwood by any chance? He was. He was <laughs> called Cyril Norwood. He was. He absolutely was. Uh, so it wasn't that they met in Norwood. Uh, he was called Cyril Norwood. And this commission, he chaired it. He is generally regarded as probably being quite, quite old school, quite elitist. So in the report he writes in the end has a, a lovely, uh, a lovely ancient Greek uh, epigraph to it. <laughs> He's in some ways maybe an odd person to put in charge of this big reforming commission. But he certainly does have some quite reforming ideas. You can argue about whether they're very forward thinking reforms or whether they're quite maybe a little more backward looking. But he certainly has some big ideas about examination, about assessment, about the school certificate, about the higher certificate. The Norwood Commission does, in the end, lead to the A-level. But the odd thing about it is I don't think it's necessarily what Cyril Norwood would have wanted. (laughs) So in the end, the A-level does come out of this Norwood Commission, but I'm not sure that is his aim. I I think he wanted something quite different. And so as well as this being interesting in in terms of how the A-level comes about, it's interesting to think about how sometimes government commissions do work out and how they often end up with something quite different from what their framers intended. Very interesting in terms of the politics that must have been going on in that room too. I I wonder whether it was simply that he was outmaneuvered by the rest of the the people on the commission or or maybe he was a good chair and a, a chair that was prepared to listen to other points of view I don't know so let's let's set up what the debate is Cyril Norwood himself is very keen on getting rid of all external exams wow so he does not like the school certificate he does not like the higher certificate he wants internal examinations and he wants there to be much more power and responsibility for teachers and schools and what is really interesting about this is Cyril Norwood he's a bit older when he's chair of this commission he is he started his career teaching before the school certificate he started his headship career before the school certificate and that he remembers teaching at a time where you don't have that same structure provided by the school certificate and higher certificate and perhaps he would argue where you had more freedom more autonomy where teachers and schools and head teachers had more power to do what they felt was right by their students so he doesn't like the way the school certificate and higher certificate really dominate what it is schools do so what's interesting here is in some ways you can say well he's quite backward looking he's looking back to an era when independent schools in particular you could argue were laws unto themselves got to do what they wanted you could also argue in some ways he's a very forward-looking figure because a lot of the arguments he makes about the importance of internal exams the importance of teacher assessment the fact that the teacher knows their students best those are very very current and contemporary arguments that you hear 
And I think there's also a very interesting point to be made about the changing attitudes of independent schools to examinations. And we talked about this when we interviewed Patrick Durham, who used to be a head teacher at rugby and at Westminster. We talked about how in some periods of history, independent schools have embraced and welcomed exams as a sign of their academic excellence. Mm. And how I think when league tables were first brought in, often it was independent schools who were the most supportive of league tables and the most supportive of objective exam standards because they could say, look, this is a sign of how good we are. But there are other historical moments, I would say probably including the one we're in at the moment, (laughs) where independent schools actually probably chafe against the restrictions to their autonomy that come from the influence of exams. And I think in some ways you can see when those debates happen and you can see the Norwood Commission, you can see these uh, debates as almost intra-elite debates Independent schools, Cyril Norwood, the great public schools, these are clearly part of the British establishment, part of the elite of Britain. But so too are the universities and the awarding bodies. You know, these are also prestigious parts of the British establishment and the elite. And so you can see it as almost in some ways a bit of a power struggle between the two. Norwood wants the power to rest with schools and teachers, that they can make their own choice about what their students should study and they can make decisions about how well their students have done. Exam boards will often look at that and say, well, actually, who are you to be saying that? Where's your process of standardisation? <laughs> Where's the accountability? Uh, so you have this battle. And as I say, I think you can see a bit of this battle going on at the moment where you've got a few independent schools who are saying, well, we, we don't really fancy the GCSE anymore. We don't really fancy exams at 16. They've opted out. But you can also see the same countervailing tug, <laughs> which is... A lot of these independent schools do gain a lot of credibility from being able to get their students into elite universities. So they can never completely depart from, I think, the external exam because they want to get their students into the next stage and get them into that prestigious elite next step. So that's what I mean about this almost power struggle between two quite powerful, historic, prestigious elements of the British establishment. Mm. And I think you see it in the Norwood Commission. I think you see it today. You know, I suppose you're looking beyond that. <laughs> if you want to if, if, if you want to be chippy, you could say, why is it that all the debate is between um, <laughs> between these elite parts of the British state? You know, what about ordinary people? Do they get, do they get a say? But actually, that's where it does get interesting with the, the Norwood Commission. In that, as I say, this is a, a period of, in British history, the, the mid to late 1940s, where there is a, a, a zeal for social reform, the Butler Act, Butler is a conservative education minister, but it falls to the reforming, the very radical Labour government of 1945 to implement a lot of these recommendations. So you do have that that kind of um, social reform, perhaps more egalitarian aspect that comes in as, as well. Are some of those other interests represented on the Nord Commission? Are some of the exam boards present as well? They are, and they are not happy with what Nord proposes. <laughs> They're very unhappy with it. <laughs> so as I say, you know, Norwood's proposing internal exams, teach basically teacher assessment. He also proposes something that again recurs again and again throughout history and has come up again just in the last you know, year or two, which is a school record of achievement. So the idea that as you go through school, you'll compile all the things that you achieve in school into a lovely record and you'll be able to present it to an employer. Now, Lizzie, you and I, we, we, we went through the, the heyday of this school record of achievement in the mid-90s. Do you ever remember getting your burgundy-covered folder, the National Record of Achievement folder? Did you ever get one of those? No. I mean, I'm a champion declutterer, Daisy. I think it's gone in the bin years ago. <laughs> okay. Yeah. So our, our era um, of when we were at school, 
they they kind of resurrected this sort of Norwood idea of a school record of achievement. They gave every child in England this burgundy folder, and it was it was you know it was it was kind of like the the folders you get you go to an Indian restaurant, you get the menu. <laughs> uh, you open it up. And it had all these nice, um, uh, you know, plastic pages in and you could put your life saving certificate in it. You could put in girl guide badge or whatever. <laughs> and the idea was, you know, I remember being told very solemnly that you'd give this to an employer and it'd be really important. I, I mean, nobody, you know, it, <laughs> nobody in my life has ever, no one in anyone's life has ever said, can I see your school record of achievement? Have you still got yours, Daisy? No, no one's got theirs. (laughs) You can go on eBay. You can go on eBay and buy one. And there was a very, very funny article in the Times Education Supplement a few years ago where they said, what what can you do with them? And one of the suggestions was, you could give a job lot to your local Indian restaurant, right? They'd uh, (laughs) turn them into some nice menus. You can argue this this burgundy folder has got its origins in the Norwood Commission. This is what he's keen on. And... Obviously, this is where it's quite easy, even at the time, for the exam boards and the university exam boards to argue against him because they're looking at this and saying, well, this is all very well, but people want something that's a bit more standardised. People don't just want the teacher in the school signed it off. Um, Parents and students and employers and universities want something beyond that. And what is interesting is that Norwood doesn't really have many allies. Mm. Certainly the exam boards are not not happy with his suggestion. Not only that, he thinks that by appealing to teachers, he thinks teachers will be on his side. So he tries to kind of get them on board. But what's really interesting is they're not either. There's a poll conducted at the time, and it shows that 87% of a total of 200 head teachers oppose the abolition of external exams at 16. Norwood is saying, let's give power back to schools, let's give power back to teachers. And the teacher's saying, well, actually, you know, actually quite like exams. <laughs> There's a value to them. That is really fascinating. Do you think if that poll was conducted today, it would be similarly skewed? There was a recent poll on Teacher Tap. Teacher Tap do these very interesting surveys of teachers that they sort of carry out uh, daily. And there was a recent one about bringing back coursework. So this isn't quite the same thing. But it was about whether to bring back the kind of coursework for GCSEs that was around when I started teaching. And there was an unbelievably high figure of science and math teachers who said, please, God, no. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, It was slightly lower for other subjects. But I was quite surprised by how high it was. This is the funny thing. You often get educationalists, people who are not in schools, people who are on the periphery of schools who are saying more teacher assessment, more coursework. Um, teachers know their students best and you often get teachers who have seen what coursework and teacher assessment looks like and seen the workload that comes with it and seen the pressures that come with it and seen not just the workload pressures but some of the moral pressures I think people forget this that when you're responsible for grading students who you know and often like and often want to do well that that's not always a nice position to be in Actually, sometimes you would prefer it if you could have that relationship with your student and build that relationship and not have to worry about also being judge, jury, executioner. Or the parents nobbling you at the school gate. Absolutely. Absolutely. So I would suspect that that figure there is quite high, 87%. I think the figures today might be higher than you think. Mm. And I, 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 as I say, I think that teacher tap data recently, the figure for science and maths, I can't remember, but it was very high. I think it was in the 80s or 90s as well. I think there is an element of that teachers see can see often the value of external examination, both in terms of it reducing their workload and also not putting them in some awkward positions. Having said that, I would say the era, this era, the late, the mid to late 40s, 
it probably is an era that is relatively friendly to the concept of exams, perhaps friendlier than our own time. Exams are probably seen as being quite modern, quite forward thinking. You haven't had the backlash against the 11 plus, which happens you know, a couple of decades later. You've also got what's been interesting is a lot of the army in the war. There's a very interesting senior army official, Ronald Adam, who reforms a lot of army recruitment and promotion to take into account exam information. So, yeah, exams are probably have a bit more of a progressive aspect than they do today. So that probably doesn't help Norwood. But as I say, I think that if you if you track this through time, I suspect a lot of teachers will probably be a little bit more sympathetic to exams than you might think. So things definitely aren't going Norwood's way. How does he no. handle that? <laughs> well, essentially, sort of writes his report, he gets his report out there. Um, I think the commission pretty much sort of ceases to exist or to meet, you know, so it wraps up. And in the 1945 election, so this is, uh, you know, 43, 44, in the 45 election, obviously the Conservative government lose, Labour government take over. Rab Butler, who we're going to do a couple of episodes on, who had this famous Butler Act, he is not around to implement either his sort of Butler Act or the recommendations of all these commissions he set up. And instead it falls to the Labour government and the, their, the, 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 the cabinet minister there for education is a woman. Only the second female cabinet minister in, in British history is Ellen Wilkinson. Um, so she becomes the cabinet minister who is responsible for implementing these various proposals and almost kind of making some of the decisions about what Norwood's proposed. Um, so she's obviously still got all the advice from the, the various different councils that are, are still set up and, and are still there. What's very interesting about Ellen Wilkinson is absolutely fascinating figure. We should do a do an episode on her. Her, her nickname's Red Ellen. That's partly because she's got very red hair and also because in her youth, she was very, very left wing. She's a member of the Communist Party in the 1920s. But she's probably, you know, as she gets a bit older, she does probably maybe lose a little bit of that radicalism. And perhaps you could say you can see that with some of the decisions she makes uh, over over education in that she she endorses the tripartite system, which is to go on to you know, end up being very heavily criticised by Labour radicals. So the tripartite system is basically the grammar school secondary modern distinction. So that's something, yeah, as I say, you know, future Labour radicals don't really don't like that. But she basically sort of gets that through. And she is essentially almost responsible for coming up with this with this replacement for the school certificate for the A-level. Now, it's, it's partly her. She does die halfway through this, this Labour government and then her successor, George Tomlinson, he sort of takes over. But she's there at the start and she does make, I think, quite a lot of important decisions um, around this. She is sympathetic, I think, to some of the uh, ideas that Norwood comes up with. But in the end, the decisions she takes, they do end up retaining the external examination. So they don't go for this full Norwood of getting rid of all exams. Instead, what they propose is well maybe we'll get rid of exams or we'll we'll reduce the effect of exams at 16 but we'll keep them at 18 and they propose to replace the 16 year old school certificate with the O level the ordinary level and replacing the 18 year old higher certificate with the A level but their original intention is to be a little bit sort of sympathetic to some of Norwood's proposals and to say well look if you're carrying on to do the A level you don't need to bother with the O level 
So if you're carrying on at school to 18, you don't have to worry about doing the 16-year-old exam. That's their original intention. And that is an intention that is carried through in some schools, certainly at Westminster. I don't know whether it's exclusive to certain public schools, but at Westminster, we definitely had pupils not really bothering much with O-levels and just going through to A-levels or doing sort of a few token O-levels, you know, two or three. It might happen a bit, but it doesn't happen nearly as much as they intend. (laughs) And I think the reason for that is that uh, something I always like to say is that exams are useful. those things you try and get rid of them and people complain oh I, you know the exam dominates everything and the tyranny of the exam and it's like well let's just step back and think about why that is it has some usefulness it has some functions but the funny thing is that Norwood himself in his Norwood report it's beautifully written it's really beautifully written and it's got this great section which is almost like a school debating exercise where he talks about the case in favor of exams and the case against them And he writes a beautiful couple of paragraphs on the case for and the case against. And I take part in a few debates about exams and I'm always on the pro exam side. If you want to go on YouTube and, you know, look up my name and exams, uh, you can see all these things with me arguing about why we need exams. And what is amazing is that Norwood is very anti-exams. But these couple of paragraphs he writes on the case in favour of exams are beautiful and very accurate. And I read them and I thought, you know, he could do my side of the debate. (laughs) He then does the couple of paragraphs against and comes down on the against side. But in the paragraphs he writes on the case in favour of the exam, he points out that exams provide a structure for the school and for the pupil. They provide a goal towards which the pupil can strive and a stimulus to urge him to attain it. You know, since his effort must extend over a considerable period, he's trained in perseverance and steadfastness. He has confidence in the measurement of his attainments by an external standard. (laughs) Uh, All these things are quite useful. The intention was to say, oh, we'll have a 16-year-old exam, but a lot of students won't need to do it. In practice, students, I think, do it and schools do it because there is a value in the structure provided by exams. There is a value in in having some kind of syllabus that, that is set out for you. And schools often do like that and students often like that. So... The intention of Ellen Wilkinson and these later framers of of the new assessment system is to say we don't need a 16-year-old exam, but in practice, the 16-year-old exam becomes very popular as well. And again, there is an echo with the modern age, and the echo with the modern age is that there are constant calls now to get rid of the GCSE, which is the current 16-year-old exam. And people say, well, if all students are staying on to to 18, why do we need an exam at 16? Well, there's a variety of reasons, a lot of them put forward by Norwood. (laughs) You know, this importance of structure. Also, the point being that if you're going to drop subjects at 16 and only carry on with a few towards the age of 18, it's nice to have some record of what you did study. If you take seven subjects to age 16 and you drop four of them at 16, it's nice to have a record to say, well, I did study these four up until this point and I have got some statement of what I got and I did work towards something for them whereas if you don't have that it can get a bit meaningless the intention is this 16 year old exam won't be that important in actual fact it becomes quite important it becomes quite popular it's taken by a lot and then the new 18 year old exam so they replace the higher certificate with the A level the advanced level right and so what are the aims of that yeah the idea of this is as I say they don't go full Norwood and let let, let schools just internally examine They go for kind of a bit of a halfway house. Um, So they do want to remove some of the strictness of the school certificate. 
where you've got these awarding bodies, bodies who are very strict about what you can and can't do and you have to opt in to a particular exam board, a particular university. And I suppose, again, that goes back to my point about these intra-elite struggles. The the moment, it, the, the way it's set up with the, the highest certificate is the awarding body have quite a lot of power over what schools do. And so the A-level, it lets students and schools pick and mix exams a bit. It also lets them pick and mix exam boards. And they don't opt to take up that freedom immediately. You know, in the first few years, schools are generally sticking with the same exam board. But over time, and as we see now, certainly you would see, schools do end up mixing and matching their exam board. It does reduce a little bit, I guess, the power and influence of, of the awarding bodies. It does give schools and students a little bit more freedom, but it absolutely does retain the external exam. And it, it absolutely does, you know, it doesn't give give Norwood what he wanted in terms of the internal examination and the, the school record of achievement. Although, as I say, that school record of achievement keeps floating around for decades after. And are these new A-levels successful then? In terms of people wanting to do them and students wanting to do them then then yes and so the numbers taking them as I say the numbers taking them to begin with are still quite small as a proportion of children in England but the the number you know keeps going up and up and up they become very popular and that in itself kind of causes causes some problems (laughs) the other thing I think that's popular is getting credit for every subject you pass that makes it a bit easier for students to take some or if they fail one they can, they can still get credit for the ones they pass and I, I think yeah pick, being able to pick your own subjects is is popular too and I think it's probably also the case that again you could sort of debate this but orig- certainly originally in the first iterations that the A-levels are probably a bit more in depth than the subjects that were done with the school certificate and that's maybe hard to prove but perhaps yeah, this idea that you're going to study, just be able to drop your weaker subjects, focus on fewer subjects, do those in more depth and do do very well on those. That's certainly a bit of a, a principle behind it as well, that, yeah, there's going to be this sort of more choice and ability to focus on what you want to focus on. And the school certificate only survives 30 or so years, but the A-level is still alive and well with us now, clocking up 70 plus years. How's it changed over that time? Well, as I say, it has been very popular. And the numbers doing it are now far, far greater. The proportion of the, the cohort would do it is far greater than the proportion of the cohort doing it in 1951. And that has caused its own problems. And we talked in the exams episode about how an A in an A-level today is not what an A in an A-level was maybe 40, 50 years ago, let alone 70 years ago. And in a sense, that's inevitable. That if you go from a qualification that one or 2% or 5% of, of students are doing to one that nearly 50% are doing, you cannot keep the grade structure the same. Its popularity has meant it's, have to, it's had to change. But I think what's interesting is that it's still managed to maintain certainly a reputation for quality. It's something that I think people look at and still think, you know, it does have, uh, it, it, is, it is of a good standard. The, the line people always use, it's, you know, it's the gold standard. <laughs> and that's why prime ministers and education secretaries maybe don't want to get rid of it because it does still have that reputation look it probably as I say isn't now at that top end we've talked before about the tension between excellence and equity I think at that top end particularly maybe for some subjects like maths and science it probably does need to be supplemented by something extra just as back in the the 30s and 40s people were saying well is the school certificate right for 
deciding who should get a university scholarship. So you've always got these these tensions at the top end of how do you distinguish between students. But I would say notwithstanding all of that, it has been popular. It has fulfilled a lot of very important aims. It does have this reputation for quality. And it's probably of sort of modern British institutions, these institutions that were set up in the 20th century. I, I would argue it's, you know, you could say it's up there with the NHS and the BBC. It's... um. It's the youngest of those three, <laughs> but it's similar in age to the NHS. It's a, a, a little bit younger than the BBC. It's actually got an international reach the way the BBC has. People have heard of it. People know what it is. Even people who have never done one, they know what I think they know what an A level is, and they know that it's 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 you know generally speaking a good thing. There'd be those who disagree and who think the debasement is 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 too great. As, as there'd be people who look at the NHS and BBC and say, oh, they're, they're tainted or whatever. Dominic Cummings, who was special advisor to Michael Gove and who's education secretary, he just, I think literally in the last week, sent round an article in his Substack newsletter where he was saying, actually, the A-level, it's been run down, the quality is not there, it's not, you know, it's been debased, it's been corrupted. There is that argument. As I say, there certainly is evidence to suggest at that top end, it is not doing what it was doing. But I think... <laughs> Something can still be very good and of a high standard, even if it isn't aimed targeted at just the top one percent. Um, you know, it can still it can still be value. And they have looked at ways around that, haven't they? I mean, I remember when I was doing my A levels, there was something called the Advanced Extension Award. Yes, I remember those. Yeah, I think look, one of the great challenges of assessment is there are trade offs between excellence and equity, and there are trade offs between the floor and the ceiling. And those are, I would say to people sort of on both sides of this ideological divide, those are just technical aspects of assessment that are hard to get around. I I mean, the, 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 you know, the technical solution to them, you can say is adaptive testing, which is where every student, you know, you do an online test where every student starts with the same question and then it takes them off in a different pathway, depending whether they get that question right or wrong. But if you're doing paper tests, it is exceptionally hard to have a paper test that can cover the entire range of attainment. And the older the students get, the harder that gets. So to create a maths exam for 18-year-olds that would cover the entire range of maths attainment uh, to be done on paper and done in two hours, you just couldn't do it. <laughs> or anything you did do, would, you know, you'd have such a huge margin forever. What the, the A-level what I think it is trying to do and is not doing too badly is trying to do something, you know, probably for pupils from maybe the 40th to the 90th, 95th percentile. Once you get into that top five or 10%, it does get trickier. And certainly for subjects like maths, you probably need something different. Something like, as you say, that the old advanced extension award or maths, you've got the step papers or you've got other kinds of extension papers or Cambridge pre-use or whatever. So there probably does need to be something. And that, again, goes right back to when they were having these school certificate arguments, when they were saying, well, for the scholarship university entrance, do we need something different? Maybe we do. I can see the argument for that being the responsibility of the universities themselves. If if the purpose of these extension papers is to differentiate between people going to the top tier of universities, then th- there's no harm in putting the onus on the universities to set those tests. Absolutely. And there is also a very interesting discussion here to be had about the role of the universities. So I've talked a little bit about how the universities have got these maybe intra-elite debates with the public schools. I've also talked about how 
as the exam system has developed, it's become less about an individual don writing a paper and more about almost a spin-off university department who specialise in this and employ professionals and a lot of statisticians to manage everything that goes with it. And the consequence of that is that actual dons and maybe actual professors <laughs> are not necessarily involved in some of these mass qualifications anymore. And this often confounds politicians. So there was a history of the A-level written in the, the Times Educational Supplement recently, which talked about Michael Gove and again, that man Dominic Cummings, that <laughs> uh, their reform of A-levels, of, you know, creating the current A-levels we have now. And this article was saying that Gove and Cummings wanted universities to take ownership of the new A-levels and they felt that was the way to drive up quality, but the universities didn't want to. That doesn't surprise me remotely. <laughs> and Dominic Cummings, this is a quote from the article, Dominic Cummings has admitted that the institutions had to be forced into taking part in his boss's reforms. And I think this is the big difference between the 19th century and now, is that assessment is almost a specialist profession with its own professionals. <laughs> and it's professors and dons can obviously have ideas, but do they actually want to take over <laughs> and be really involved in the nitty gritty of some of this when they themselves have professionalised and have their research assessment exercises and they're teaching excellence framework and they have their own day jobs? Things are very different. And it, it, I think it probably does feel straightforward to say, well, the universities are the end users, so they should be more involved with them. And I do have some sympathy with that argument and probably frustrates me when universities complain about things without wanting to, to sort of get involved with fixing them. But on the other hand, it, the world is different now. It, it, you know, things are more specialised. Assessment is a big beast. It's not necessarily something that universities can just come in and, and fix. So you've probably still got a lot of those intra-elite tensions, but they they manifest in a different way to in the, the 1940s and definitely the 1860s. They're quite a profitable wing of universities too, aren't they, these assessment boards? That's absolutely right. They are, because to go back to what I was saying about them being global and having a global reputation, English qualifications do have this global reputation. One of my favourite <laughs> little, little, little tangent here, there's an Inspector Morse novel, uh, Colin, De Colin Dexter, used to work as an examiner, I think, mm -hmm. um, in, in, in Oxford for, for an Oxford exam board. And he wrote a detective novel in, I think, the 70s, where the plot is about a student abroad getting someone to cheat uh, on their exam for them. <laughs> and all the everything that, you know, results from that sort of, you know, exam board corruption that, that results from it and the problems that causes and the murders it causes. Mm. Um, so... Yes, even by the 70s, certainly, you know, maybe earlier than the 70s, you've, you've got a huge thing with the, the, the British Empire, you know, pre-war, where these are important. But it, it's sustained after decolonisation. Plenty of countries around the world who want to do kind of exams set by, by English universities. And you have a lot of these institutions which have retained some kind of link to the university, in some cases spun off completely. Uh, but yeah, you absolutely have a lot, a lot of institutions that yeah, are, are, are profit making or if they're, if they're not private companies, certainly still kind of make a lot of money for their for their university. Yeah, in that sense, exams, assessment, they're, they're, they're big business. Do you think if the advanced British standard does actually come to pass, do you think it really will be curtains for A-levels or do you think there still will be a, an international market for the A-level exams? So this is the question on everyone's lips. So just to go back to recap what's happening. The advanced British standard, it has got a very long lead time. So it's been proposed by Rishi Sunak as a replacement for A-levels. 
it's the intention is it will kill off A-levels. It does have a long lead time of 10 years. And as a number of people have noted, you know, a lot can happen in a decade. If it goes ahead, it will be the end of the A-level or certainly the end for it in England. It may well survive in some sort of guise abroad. It's perfectly possible. The O-level still does. <laughs> the A-level, though, is a great survivor. As I say, the O-level got killed off, but the A-level carried on. The A-level had a very near-death experience in, I think, 2004, 2005. It was nearly killed off by diplomas. So the big report by the Tomlinson report under Tony Blair which proposed probably something in some way similar to this advanced British standard, which would have got rid of A-levels and replaced them with diplomas. And the A-level was saved, the story goes, by a last-minute intervention by Tony Blair, and that Blair did not want to be the Prime Minister who got rid of the A-level. And it goes back to that phrase again, the gold standard. (laughs) He didn't want to be the man who got rid of the gold standard and dumped things down, and people would look back and go, you killed off this great, thing about the, the 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 British education system so he saved it and in the end it was diplomas <laughs> they 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 were launched and they staggered on for a few years but they they didn't really last the A-level has seen off a lot of competition it does have as I say it does have this reputation it I think is one of these sort of modern British institutions like the NHS like the BBC which people do probably in some ways think of fondly there's probably something about something you do when you're a teenager <laughs> that you maybe even if you didn't love it at the time, you sometimes people look back nostalgically, don't they? <laughs> um, and think back to that and maybe then sort of think, well, I would, why, why should we get rid of it? Look, if these plans go ahead, it's dead. But a lot can happen in a decade. Do you want to set a bet? Do you want to set the odds on it, Lizzie? No. Do you have a bet? <laughs> no. No. <laughs> we'll bring up William Hill and say, what would you give us on the A-level being around in, you know, um, 2040? I don't, I don't know what odds I'd put on it. Well, that is it from us for this episode. We're going to be taking a short break over Christmas and the New Year. And we will be back in the New Year with two episodes commemorating the 80th anniversary of the Butler Act. In the meantime, if you're enjoying this podcast, please tell your friends. Uh, you can leave us a nice review. And let us know on Twitter if there's anything you'd like to hear about in future episodes. So uh, we're looking forward to those two episodes on the Butler Act in the new year. Have a good Christmas.